Listeners across the world and loyal members of our spooky nation, please join this spooky show in 8 minutes and 46 seconds of silence to honor the memory of George Floyd and other victims of systemic racial violence against people of color in the United States of America. We need to do better. No one is truly free until all of us are free. Thank you.
Warning, this, this podcast contains adult language and material that may not be suitable for younger or more sensitive listeners. You have been warned. Welcome back to the haunted hallways of our collective minds. Wait, was that shadow there before? What shadow? I don't, I don't, I, I, okay, well, just moving on. This spooky show. We are your condemned tour guides of this paranormal maze, and yes, we accept tips. The ghoul babes. I got a tip for you. Just the tip. <laughs> <laughs> Bet you didn't see that coming. Speaking of, I'm the twist ending that no one saw coming. I'm Vivian. <laughs> With the twist. Oh, God, that man. I hate that man so much. And I'm what's left at the end of the Kool-Aid pitcher, a healthy mixture of food coloring and despair. I'm Jade. It just makes me giggle. <laughs> just, it's so good. I'm glad my despair makes you giggle. I mean, it's mostly the food coloring and not so much true. the despair, but you know. It's colorful despair. It's true. It's, it's very vibrant. <laughs> so do you like movies, Spooky Nation? We're going to assume that your answer is yes, since we can't actually hear your answer. And so do we. Yay, because who doesn't like movies? Yeah, crazy people. That's Yeah, good. exactly. But what do the ghoul babes love even more than glitz and glamour? That's right. Tinseltown tragedies. And alliteration. All the alliteration. All of it. Now, we covered some famous killings in a previous episode, but we thought we'd take another angle on this one. Get it? Like, like camera angles? Ugh. Okay, I'll show myself out. <laughs> That's right, you will. <laughs> That's right, much like Mulholland Drive, both the actual road and the film by David Lynch, Hollywood and fame can be full of sharp twists and dangerous turns, and confusing symbolism. So we thought, instead of covering celebrity murderers, we would cover some famous and sometimes unsolved celebrity demises. Grab your camera for this tour. There's more than just smog in that LA sky tonight, because we see, well, we would see stars, but instead we see nothing due to light pollution. Great. <laughs> Anyway, let's start things off with the story of a famous beauty and a tragic, untimely, and perhaps prophesied death. Of course, we are talking about the life and death of actress Natalie Wood. Natalie Wood, born Natalia Nikolaevna Zarenko, was born in July of 1930 to two Russian immigrants, hence why her name is so hard to pronounce. It's alphabet soup, people. <laughs> her family fled a war-torn Russia and eventually settled in San Francisco. She was the middle child with one older and one younger sister. Natalie's mother, Maria, dreamed of becoming an actress or a ballet dancer in her youth. So there is some speculation, as biographer Warren Harris wrote, that Maria may have transferred her own dreams and ambitions onto her daughter. Natalie was quoted saying, My mother used to tell me that the cameraman who pointed his lens out at the audience at the end of the Paramount newsreel was taking my picture. I'd pose and smile like he was going to make me famous or something. I believed everything my mother told me. That last bit will become important later on. Yes, it will. From a young age, Natalie had been noticed by people working in show business, and it wasn't long before Maria moved the family to L.A. in order to pursue an acting career for young Natalie. It was then that Natalia Zarenko became Natalie Wood, in reference to director Sam Wood. As a child, Natalie worked as an actress in many films. However, the one she is most known for is Miracle on 34th Street, which is her first major role. By the age of nine, Natalie Wood had been named, quote, the most exciting juvenile motion picture star of the year, unquote, by Parents Magazine. 
Maria played a significant role in her daughter's career, often coaching and micromanaging Natalie even after she acquired agents. She also played a significant role in her daughter's extreme fear of water. She once told Natalie that a Chinese fortune teller predicted Maria's daughter would, quote, be a beauty known worldwide, but that this beauty would drown in dark water. An incident at 11 years old during the filming of The Green Promise only further solidified the fear that Maria had planted in Natalie. In the scene, Natalie was to run across a bridge during a rainstorm. The bridge was to collapse, but not until after she was safely across to the other side. That did not happen, as someone pulled the bridge to collapse too soon, leaving young Natalie to fall into the rough, dark water below, breaking her wrist and nearly drowning. She was so afraid of water that even as an adult, she would have panic attacks while washing her hair, and she never learned how to swim. I think it, it can be like that, but I think everybody has to make their own way, you know? And uh, I think you can, you can uh, do your own thing um, and go your own way. You don't have to rush to all the openings or do whatever, you know, those things are that rattle your cage. Yeah. And I think, uh, I mean, we, we were able to spend a lot of time together and with our kids, and uh, we have a boat. So that's a, a good thing for us, because we like to do things, you know, with our children. Is it tough for you to protect your privacy? Well, it's easy with the boat, because uh, you can get on the boat, and within minutes, you know, you're away, and it's peaceful. That's crazy. I mean, that's like, yeah, it's like very fortune teller, like, the gypsy was right, this is how I die. And what was nuts, too, was that it was like, because of, there was very little, like, child labor, you know, oversight in Hollywood at the time, that's like, if that happened now, you bet your ass somebody would get sued up one side and down the other for their 11-year-old breaking their wrist on set. Especially with a momager, like, 100%. Like, stage mom to the fucking hilt. But I wonder how her mom was feeling, like, because I'm assuming because she was such a micromanager Mm -hmm. in there, that she was watching this, and I wonder what she was feeling since she was the one that got that fortune if she was like, oh my god, this is it. This is it. Maybe. I don't know, but obviously she just kept pushing her to keep going and just maybe just reminded her, just like, hey, just keep acting, but stay away from water, because look what happened. Look what almost happened. Wear your water wings. Yeah, wear your water wings, honey. <laughs> <laughs> put, your, put the vest on like like Mama told you. <laughs> Where's your donut? Mama, are you proud of me now, Mama? <laughs> <laughs> I'm wearing my wings, Mama. <laughs> so on November 28th, 1981, which is the day before my first birthday, Ooh. by the way... Natalie Robert Wagner and Brainstorm co-star Christopher Walken were on Robert's yacht, The Splendor, for a weekend boating trip to Catalina Island for Thanksgiving. They began their evening with a dinner at Doug's Harbor Reef. They spent their evening laughing, talking about film, and enjoying each other's company. It's reported that they left so drunk that the manager of the restaurant, Don Whiting, had called down to the docks to ensure that the trio made it safely to their dinghy, and that the dinghy made it safely back to The Splendor. I don't know about you, but all of this seems like the makings of a great night to me. Drunk on a boat. (laughs) On a dinghy. (laughs) On a dinghy. You said dinghy. It didn't stay that way, however. At 1.30 a.m., Don Whiting heard Robert Wagner's voice on the ship-to-shore radio asking for help as someone from their boat was missing. Natalie. Whiting decided to wake up harbormaster Doug Odin. I challenge all of you guys to go out and look up a picture of this guy. He literally looks like the Monopoly man took a vacation on Boardwalk. Get it? 
like like the property. That's two. Monopoly. That's two. <laughs> <clears throat> Together, the two sailed out to the Splendor. They interviewed both Wagner and Walken, who both stated that the evening had been a pleasant one, and it was during this time that Odin noticed that the dinghy was missing. At 3.30 a.m., they notified the Coast Guard, but as the nearest outpost was hours away, Odin and Whiting organized their own search party to try and locate Natalie and the missing dinghy. They find the dinghy at 5.15 a.m., but Natalie is nowhere in sight. Finally, at 8 a.m., one mile away from the boat, Natalie's body is discovered. Natalie Wood was dead, drowned in dark waters, just as the fortune teller had predicted. And this is why we don't trust gypsies. No. Or do, I guess. In or this do, case. I guess, yeah, or, or take them at their word. <laughs> like, if, if a gypsy tells me not to go near dark water, I'm, I'm going to listen. No. I'm going to 100% listen. Her death was ruled an accidental drowning by LA County Coroner Thomas Noguchi. In his report, he stated that Natalie's blood alcohol level was 0.14%, and she had traces of motion sickness medication and a painkiller in her bloodstream, both of which would increase the effects of alcohol. He also stated that since Natalie had been drinking, she may have slipped while trying to reboard the dinghy, and being both drunk and weighed down by her heavy clothing, she could not pull herself back into the small vessel. Now, while this was the official ruling for the case, not everyone was so convinced that Natalie's death was accidental. Her own sister, Lana Wood, had her own doubts due to her sister's paralyzing fear of water and stated that Natalie would never have left the yacht on her own. Cause for more speculation came in November of 2011 when Dennis Davern, alliteration folks, alliteration again, captain of Splendor, came out and said that he had lied to the police during the initial investigation and that Natalie and Robert had argued that night. He said that Natalie had been flirting with Christopher Walken that night, which enraged Robert, he also stated that Robert, quote, prevented him from turning on searchlights and notifying authorities after Natalie's disappearance. This could be corroborated by the fact that Natalie disappeared around midnight, but the call that Whiting heard on the ship to shore radio did not come in until 1.30. He alleged that Robert Wagner was responsible for Natalie Wood's death. I also heard that he recounted later on that there was a, I guess, a fight in like they were all drinking, they'd all gone back onto the ship and were all hanging out and drinking together. And at one point there was a bottle of champagne that was like broken, mm -hmm. um, like thrown down. And Robert Wagner at one point, I guess, accused Christopher Walken and said like, what are you trying to do? Fuck my wife. Like supposedly he said that. And then later on he denied the fight. Like at first he was like, no, it was just a, uh, it was just a lively political debate. And, and Walken was like kind of corroborated it. Mm -hmm. And then later in his biography which Wagner wrote in like 2012 or 2013 he then admitted yeah there was an argument so his details are like he's remembering things more clearly like 30 years later which that's a little weird it's a little suspicious part of me is like what reason aside from fame does Dennis Davern have for yeah lying right I mean well the only thing I could figure because he did like in some of his interviews, he came across as, like, almost kind of creepily, like, not obsessed with her, but, like, that he had maybe feelings for her. Mm -hmm. And and I think, and it's just in my head, and this is what I'm just thinking, that he went out, like, she was out on the boat, or she was out on the deck, and maybe was trying to do something, and he maybe approached her and tried something, because he figured maybe she was drunk, and, you know, she'd already had a fight with Robert Wagner and she, you know, was nobody was out there. So maybe he tried to put the moves on her and then she got pissed and was like, 
what the fuck are you doing? And then he dropped her into the boat and, like, pushed the boat. Like, I don't know. Like, So you think that maybe it could be possible he's putting it on Robert to yeah. cover up his own... I, yeah, it's possible. Just because the guy's not really 100% trustworthy. Like, he sold his story to the National Enquirer and that sort of thing. So it's like, it's either a clear he's in it for fame... Or he's trying to cover up maybe his own misdeeds. I don't know. That's just my theory. Mm -hmm. Then in 2012, L.A. County Chief Coroner Lakshmanan Safisvagarian changed Natalie's cause of death on her death certificate to, quote, drowning and other undetermined factors, stating that, quote, it was not clearly established how Wood ended up in the water. Then in January the following year, the coroner's office released a 10-page addendum to the original report, stating that while Natalie may have received some of the bruises which were present on her face, arms, and legs from the water, they could not say that that was the definitive cause. Natalie was susceptible to bruising because she was taking Synthroid, a drug used to treat hypothyroidism. In February of 2018, Robert Wagner was named a person of interest in the case, though he still denies that he had any involvement. Officials did say that it was possible that she was abused before going into the water. So, what do you think? Accidental or murder? It's a tr- that's a tricky one. Like, I think I think if it was foul play, I definitely think that it's foul play is possible. Um, but there's not enough evidence to refute the fact that it was maybe a tragic accident. Because honestly, if she was as drunk as it seemed, according to the autopsy report, that she was that inebriated. Sometimes we do things in a st- altered state that we would not normally do. Right. You know, sometimes it gives you what they, you know, that's what they call alcohol liquid courage. You know, yeah, she was afraid of water and she was afraid of that, but maybe because of the fight and she was so upset and so out of her mind on booze that maybe she just wasn't thinking and decided like, fuck it, I'm going to get in the ship and like go to shore and like I'll show him or like, I, mm-hmm. I don't know. Like who knows what the thought pattern was at that point in time. Yeah, my theory is kind of along the same lines of, so if everything was hunky-dory, maybe she was so drunk that she was like, I'm going to go back to shore and get us some more booze Mm -hmm. or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was a thing that happened. Right. My other theory is that if there was a fight, which some evidence is there and, you know. Right. People are corroborating that there was um, an argument. Right. That maybe she got mad fled the scene where they were at and then when she got out she was feeling a little woozy both from the drugs <clears throat> the drugs and the alcohol and then maybe just slipped yeah into the dinghy and the rest was sad sad history right or then like you know like the thing got tossed and then she just wasn't able to she fell out and wasn't able to get back in it and just right. maybe held on to the side for as as long as she was able, because I guess when she was found, she was found in her in a nightgown and socks and, and a big heavy jacket and a big heavy parka, which they th- theorize is what us you know kind of led to the drowning. A she didn't know how to swim. B the parka soaked up a bunch of water and it got really heavy, so it would have mm-hmm. been really hard for her. A in an altered state, and B in a really heavy jacket to try to fight the water, and she would just got exhausted and just and drowned. Yeah. Um. So I think it's it could be either. Honestly, it could just be any, a factor of either, like foul play. It's I don't think anyone will ever know, and unless you know somebody decides to confess on their deathbed. Unfortunately, I think we'll we'll just be kind of stuck in the in the limbo of not knowing. Well, speaking of not knowing, yes, we're gonna move on to a murder that we do know what happened. We do know this one. We know a lot of what happened. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so I'm going to be talking about the murder of one Gianni Versace, the famous Versace assassination. Born Giovanni Maria Versace in Reggio Calabria, Gianni was the middle child. His mother, Francesca, was a dressmaker, and it is perhaps because of her influence at such a young age that Gianni went into the world of fashion too. As an adolescent, he apprenticed at his mother's shop and ultimately moved to Milan at 26 to pursue fashion design. From there, his success as a designer built rapidly. Only one year after moving to Milan, Versace became the designer for Biblos, a successful, youthful line by Jenny, an Italian ready-to-wear manufacturer. Think of the designers sold exclusively at Macy's or Kohl's or Target. That's kind of what he was doing at the time. Okay. Then, in 1977, he was able to design for Complice for Jenny, which was an even more experimental line than the one previous. The following year, he opened his first boutique in Milan's Via de Espiga, and then a few years later, he was presenting his first ever signature women's collection at the Palazzo della Permanente Art Museum of Milan, and had his first fashion show that following September. So, fun fact, my great-grandmother, mm-hmm. or grandfather, I don't remember, What one of the two, <laughs> I think it was grandfather, no, wrong, anyways, great-grandmother is from the same town. Oh, wow. As Versace. <laughs> I didn't realize that until I was watching a biography on him, and I went, that's where my great-grandmother's from. <laughs> I wonder if she knew them. She could have. That'd be rad. It seems like it was a kind of a smallish. It's not town. a big town. It's not. It's in. It's a very small town in Sicily. Um, and Sicily's small already. And Sicily's an island. So yeah, it's it's not it's not big. It's very it's a very arid small area. So I'm like, it's possible, especially like back then, that they knew each other. Maybe or I have family members. I think I still have family members over there that may have known the Versace family. So hey. Oddly enough, I have more of a connection to him than the guy who shot him did. <laughs> but but up bum. Shots fired, bitch. Yes, yes they were. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so he became a success in Italy quickly, and it wasn't long before Versace became an international sensation. Quote, his designs employed vivid colors, bold prints, and sexy cuts, which were a refreshing contrast to the prevailing taste for muted colors and simplicity. So in other words, he was, was nice because his stuff was exciting and everyone else's was boring. Basically, yeah. Got it. Um, plus, he was so into Greek mythology, um, especially Medusa, which is why his logo is, is still head. Medusa. Yeah. Um, that I'm sure that bringing in that kind of inspiration to things was much different than what most people were seeing. That's very true. His aesthetic was very much classic luxury meets sexy. And he was quoted as saying, I don't believe in good tastes, which is basically his way of saying, piss off with your conformity. I'm doing things my own way. So there. Which is what fashion's about. Yeah. Fashion's art. And it's not like about just making the same clothes over and over. Right. And fun fact, there was actually a rivalry between Armani and Versace. And I guess there was this saying that went around that Armani dresses the wife while Versace dresses the mistress. Ooh. Ooh. The sting. (laughs) The sting of it all, y'all. But we're not here to talk fashion. 
We're here to talk murder. Yay! <laughs> I mean, not yay, but, you know. Yay! <laughs> Gianni Versace was murdered on July 15th, 1997. He was shot execution style with a 40 caliber Taurus PT-100 on the steps of his Miami mansion. He was pronounced dead at Jackson Memorial Hospital at 9.21 a.m. He was murdered by Andrew Cunanan, who we will delve into a little bit deeper in just a moment. But first, <laughs> could you imagine that 911 call? Oh, no. 911, what's your emergency? Help! Versace's on, on the, the floor. floor. <laughs> oh, damn. <laughs> I see you, Bruno Mars. <laughs> I see you. I see you, boo. <laughs> really, it's all very sad, I promise. I mean, we're trying to make light of a terrible situation. Yes. But, you know, it's it's it was awful. Like, it's an awful thing. What happened, obviously. When anybody dies or anyone dies tragically like that, it's it's awful. So we, we try to make, you know, try to see the lighthearted side of things and, you know, try to cope with dark humor. Because that's what we do. And if any one of you out there says you didn't laugh at Versace's on I the mean, floor, you're that, a liar. You're a fucking liar. Because <laughs> that was good. That was. Kudos. <laughs> the, two, the two prior puns are forgiven. <laughs> Yay! Anyhow, let's talk about Andrew. Andrew Philip Cunanan was born August 31st, 1969 in National City, California to Modesto Pete Cunanan and Mary Ann Shiasi. As a teen... Andrew gained the reputation of being a liar, which is great. reputation to have. It's not good. (laughs) He'd often lie about his background, his family's wealth, and his personal life. While he identified as gay in high school, some of his old friends have said that he had the habit of telling people what they wanted to hear that would raise whatever would raise his social status. It was also during this time that he began his affairs with older, wealthy men. He was definitely a clout chaser. He was even a creep, though, kind of in high school, because I guess there was, like, in his yearbook, which I know I've told you about, Mm -hmm. and it's, like, one of my favorite facts about Andrew Cunanan, is that in his yearbook, like, I think he was voted, like, he was actually voted things, so he was a fairly popular student, Mm -hmm. you know, probably, you know, (laughs) due to lying um, about things. So the quote in his senior yearbook that he had under his photo was, Après moi, le deluge, which means after me, the flood, or after me, the... The, the disaster or whatever. And it's commonly attributed to Louis the 15th um, who died of smallpox, who's trying to like, it was like his last words or it's like during a battle or something like that. And basically saying like, Oh, if I die, shit's going to go cray. So it, when all this other stuff happened later and people went back and read that in the yearbook, it was like, Oh, was he trying to say something then? Mm. You know, was he basically saying like, Hey, if I don't get famous, gonna be at the end for all of y'all maybe or it could have just been him being like just being snooty and just like look at your french i'm so important and i know everything guys. i know french words i know french and look how classy i am <laughs> spoiler alert no <laughs> no as an adult andrew continued to attach himself to wealthy men quote living off of one wealthy patron or another he was a bit of a skis, this much is true, but how is it that he and Versace crossed paths? Well, the two men in, met in San Francisco in October of 1990. Versace was in town to be honored for the costumes he had designed for the San Francisco opera production of Richard Strauss's Capriccio. 
The two reportedly met at the VIP room of the nightclub Colossus. Versace had seen Andrew and his friend Eli Gold standing around, so he walked over to them. Because that's what famous people do. You know, because that's totally believable. Right? (laughs) To Andrew, he said, I know you. Lago di Como, no? He was referring to his lake house off of Lake Como. Apparently, Versace used this line a lot to try and strike up conversation with people. Kind of like the, you come here often, except more of like, you come to my house often. I thought he was like trying to determine if they were George Clooney or not. And then they were like, no, he's like, okay, goodbye. (laughs) (laughs) Because George Clooney also lives on Lake Como, so there you go. Oh, maybe it could be. Like, are you, no, turn around, goodbye. (laughs) (laughs) Goodbye. According to witnesses, Andrew responded, That's right. Thank you for remembering, Signor Versace. Eli was probably standing there like, Bitch, you've never been to Lake Como. You've never been to Lake Mead, ho. <laughs> Just insert the why the fuck you lying song. Yeah. Why you gotta be lying? <laughs> the three continued to talk for a bit before Andrew and Eli made their way back to the dance floor. Andrew had always talked about celebrities that he rubbed elbows with and couldn't wait to tell us about his chance encounter and meeting fashion designer Gianni Versace. We laughed and we said, well, good for you. Isn't that, isn't that something? Another tall tale? Did he really meet him? Did they hang out in the limo and club it all night? Maybe yes, maybe no. By all accounts, it was a pretty nice, decent conversation, if you believe it happened. I don't. I don't believe it happened that I way. I mean, this guy was like a pathological liar, so I'm kind of like suspect to believe anything he says at this point. So. Yeah, and I know that, um... I feel like the part is true that they were at the same club together. I don't think he was approached by Versace at all. I think he probably saw him and saw him in the same place, you know, but I don't think there was any interaction. I think that was the, the end of the interaction. Well, I know that Maureen Uth who wrote the book that the docu-series TV show Mm -hmm. um, that's on Netflix was based off Mm -hmm. of. She says that she got this information from witnesses and stuff. One, I don't know how many of those witnesses were just told this by Andrew. Right. Um, If anything, if Versace did approach them, I feel like it was more of like, hey, do you know where the bathroom is? Right. Or like, something like that. Or like, hey, can you guys move aside? I need to order a drink. Yeah. They were like standing by the bar or something. Or like, hey, excuse me. You know, like, I don't, I think if, I think you're right. I think if there was any kind of interaction, it was a very brief, like, toss off kind of a moment. Um, It wasn't like, hey, uh, I remember you from Lake Como. Bitch, no, you don't. Bitch, no. Like, and I feel like that he maybe conflated that into something it wasn't. Yeah, because there was even a part where he told somebody, I can't remember who, but he was like, yeah, he comes up to me and says, hi, I'm Versace. And I say, if you're Versace, I'm Coco Chanel. Calm down, queen. You're not as important as you think you are. Yeah, it, it, I feel like it, he's one of those people that would, it started off as a, hey, excuse me, where's the restroom? And it turned into him asking you to marry him. Like, yeah. it, it just, the story kept growing layers the more people he told and that the quote and the interaction kept evolving and becoming more than what it was. Yes. Or you have a tendency to do that. But how did we get to the point where Andrew Cunanan murdered Versace in cold blood? Well, first, we must start at the beginning with the murders that preceded Versace's assassination. Yes. 
Andrew Cananan's rash of spree killings began when Jeffrey Trail, a very close friend that some say he was obsessed with, moved to Minneapolis. Not long after, David Madsen, whom Andrew had declared was the love of his life, also moved to Minneapolis. Y- y'all see what's going on, I'm right? I'm connecting the dots, and it's in the shape of a dick. <laughs> I mean... You're not wrong. I'm not. <laughs> Andrew felt abandoned and saw Trail and Madsen's friendship as a betrayal. April 24th, 1997, a night that would be deemed the Last Supper, was the night that the old Andrew died and the new, murderous one emerged. Andrew had a very unique personality. Uh, he was quite a grandstander. He was... Uh, one to uh, leap up from the table if anybody should join the table, introduce him with first and last names. He was uh, a gregarious individual. He would always insist on being placed in the front room, which looked out onto the street, so that he could see and be seen. April 25th, Andrew decides to go to Minneapolis for a weekend stay with David Madsen. Prior to his trip, friends had warned Madsen that Cunanan was not acting like himself. Madsen noticed that his friend was more aloof and quiet than he typically was. During his stay, there was an argument between David, Andrew, and Jeffrey, possibly one fueled out of jealousy. Pretty sure that Pretty it was. Pretty sure that's accurate. Which ended with Andrew bludgeoning Jeffrey Trail to death with a claw hammer. Jesus, tap dancing Christ. Yes. Then, then calmly, as if nothing had happened, rolled the body up in a rug and put it behind the sofa. What is he, like five? This is the most twisted game of hide-and-seek I've ever heard. <laughs> like, I'm just going to put him in the rug, and no one will know. And no one will know he's dead. And, like, that's not a proportionate response, dude. You get in an argument with somebody and you murder him with a claw hammer? Like, come on. Yeah. So he stayed at that apartment with Madsen for two days before fleeing the scene of the crime now, with Madsen. Was Madsen alive at this time? Yes. So they were in the house with this dead body? Yes. That's upsetting. <laughs> and I'm sure, like, David Madsen was like, I don't want to die. Out. Yeah, like, like, I'm just going to do what you tell me to do because you're clearly out of your mind. Yeah. So they stayed together and then they fled together. And then on May 2nd, Rush City PD was called down to a lake by two fishermen that had discovered a body, the body of David Madsen. Police were able to discern that the men drove down near the water's edge, talked for a bit, and then Madsen got out of the car and began to run. Andrew shot Madsen once in the back, taking him down, and then rolled him over and fired the killing shot. Jesus. And these are people, like, he liked. you supposedly care about. Yeah, these are supposedly your friends, and supposedly one of them was the love of your life, and you murder his friend in front of him, and then you take him out and shoot him like a fucking coward in the back when he tries to escape because you're nuts. Yeah. Like if, if this is what, how you treat people you like, I don't want to know how you treat people you don't like, dude. I'd hate to see how he treated the guy at Wendy's that shorted him nuggets on his order. Oh God. Jesus. Sledgehammer. Sledgehammer. To the face. (laughs) May 3rd, Andrew finds himself in Chicago, Illinois with Lee Miglin, a wealthy, well-recognized property developer. There's some speculation that the two met earlier in California, but there's not much to confirm that. Andrew tied up the 72-year-old, put a sheet over him, and tortured him. This was the first time that he had actually engaged in overkill. 
Was this his way of getting back at all of the wealthy men that had deserted him once he turned 30 and started gaining weight and losing his hair? Oh, when he hit gay middle age? Yes. Yeah. I guess. I mean, I've heard that's a thing, but most people I know that have hit that landmark don't celebrate it by going and tying up 72-year-old real estate developers and torturing them under a sheet. No. Uh, again, not a proportionate response. Oh, usually people they just, didn't like you. Yeah, usually they just cry for like two days, eat ice cream, post vague book statuses on Facebook, and then just get the fuck over it. So at this point, Cunanan was wanted by the FBI, who had put out a countrywide APB for his arrest. Andrew had stolen Miglin's silver Lexus, and the FBI was able to track his movements from the phone located in the car. That Cunanan was using. Idiot. What a fucking knob. Right? Like, this is either you're too stupid to live or you just don't care at this point. And I'm pretty sure if the cops would have actually caught him and shown up, like, he probably would have just done whatever. Like, I think maybe it was just like, I don't give a shit. Probably a mixture of that and I'm smarter than you. Yeah. You're not going to catch me because I'm too, I'm too brilliant. I know French. Like, good. How do you say, uh, you're under arrest, bitch, in French? (laughs) I don't know the answer to that. May 8th, Pennsylvania, New Jersey. Cunanan arrives at Finn's Point, needing a new ride. He pulls up to the cemetery where he meets William Reese, the cemetery caretaker. William was packing up for the day, and Cunanan asked if he could have a glass of water because he wasn't feeling well. William lets him in, and Cunanan kills him with one bullet, then steals his car. Crime spree. Douchebag. Douchebag crime spree. Yes. Douchebag crime spree. Douchebag crime spree. It's 100% his theme song. Very much so. Very on brand. (laughs) It's very on brand. So May 12th, Miami, Florida, Cunanan arrives in Florida with a plan to lie low and wait for the perfect time to strike. He paid a month's rent in advance at Normandy Plaza and spent his days loitering around the city and on the beach. When he needed money, he took a gold coin that he had stolen from Miglin to a pawn shop and got $200 for it. The pawn shop owner asked for ID and address, and since it was all he had, he gave the owner his real information, y'all. Not a criminal mastermind, everyone. (laughs) They gave him his real ID and where he was staying at the Normandy Plaza. And and, and theoretically, diary entries, a lock of his own hair, (laughs) fingerprints... But it gets better. Oh, God. I don't know who was the bigger idiot, Cunanan, or the police who ignored the forms that the pawn shop owner handed over that had where Cunanan was staying. Well, that and I heard from another um, documentary that I watched on Versace, uh, Versace's like last 24 hours, that they had, because he was already wanted by the FBI at this point, and they had posters of of him like he was on like I don't know if he was on the 10 most wanted list but he was on a list obviously Mm -hmm. they had posters made up that they were supposed to hang up because they knew he was in the Miami area like there was a tip that he was in Miami and that there was like there was potential like we're like we're looking for this guy they never hung up the posters because there was a a junior agent left them in his car and the posters never got fucking put up was like what was this was just a series of unfortunate nonsense. Like yes. the guy wrote his, basically gave himself away, like his real name, his address, 
all of his real information on the pawn shop form, and there were posters that never got put up. And it was just like, how many other fucking things could go wrong here? At least one more. Spoiler alert. <laughs> but, you know, let's give the police the benefit of the doubt. No, let's not give the police Mm-mm. the benefit of the doubt. I don't think I want to. But let's listen to what a police detective at that time had to say about Cunanan being in Florida. There was really nobody looking for him here. Nobody thought he was here. He really was here out and about like a normal citizen, uh, minding his own business for, for at least two months that we know. Cunanan lived in Miami until July when he was ready to kill Versace. But why? Why Versace? Why Maria? Why? Exactly. The inquiring minds all want to know. During his heyday, Cunanan had boasted about his time spent with the famous designer. It was probably a whole lot of hooey, but we're moving on from that. Police and investigators have said that Cunanan's possible motives were either A, an act of self-loathing slash lash out at the gay community that had turned its back on him because Versace was very prominent in the community, or B, that he believed he had HIV and he wanted to, quote, take it out on a symbol for homosexual culture. I've heard that one. I've heard that he thought for some reason he had convinced himself that he was like HIV positive. He wasn't. He wasn't at all. But he could somehow convinced himself of this fact. But I think it was just because he was so desperate to be noticed and famous. Yeah, for sure. That he, he basically figured the easiest way for me to get my 15 minutes is to kill someone famous. Yes. Whatever the reason... Like we said, he had gotten his notoriety and his 15 hours of fame by killing Versace. That's way more than minutes. Yes, way more than minutes. His name was everywhere. His face, what he did was the headline news across the world. While he was able to escape July 15th and live under the radar for a few days, Cunanan's spree came to an end on July 23rd. He evaded the police for a week. A whole week. In Miami. Yes. That's a busy city. That's insane. That's nuts. Maybe the posters would have helped. Oh, wait. (laughs) Jerry, I'm sorry, guys. (laughs) Sorry, it was my first week on the job. I didn't really... I just got him from Kinko's and I forgot him in the car, okay? Doug ate your yogurt. (laughs) God damn it, Doug. Is that true? (laughs) Like, just throwing out whatever (laughs) to get the pressure off his back. A caretaker for a boat that was in the harbor that resided just off of Ocean Drive near Versace's house, stumbled upon Cunanan when he came in to check on the boat. He immediately went to call the authorities. A shot was fired. Authorities got to the harbor, and after hours upon hours in a standoff, they threw tear gas into the boat. When they entered, it was then that they realized that Cunanan had shot himself, not at the caretaker. They had been having, like, a 10-hour standoff with a dead guy. What did we say about not giving them the benefit of the doubt? Were these the Keystone cops? They must have been. Oh I don't... God. First string was on vacation or yeah, something. Yeah, maybe, like, everyone was out of out of the office that week, and it was just the second, second string up to bat, I guess. It was all the rookies on duty that week. I don't know. I don't know. Though he couldn't have known that was going to happen, that really was just another F you, I'm smarter than you. To the police move on Andrew's part. That's true. But that is how his story ends. Après moi, le deluge indeed. Bye, daisies <laughs> That's what Andrew Cunanan wrote in his yearbook. Bye, daisies <laughs> So then we're going to take a break from our regularly scheduled programming to bring you this really cool advertisement. Woo! You love us. 
That wasn't a question. It's just a fact. You listen to us and that makes you cool. You know what would make you cooler though? Hopping over to Zazzle.com slash shop slash this spooky show and checking out our wide variety of merch. We've got spooky face masks. It's very true. They're very spooky. T-shirts and mugs. Father's Day is just around the corner, so why not pick up dear old dad a fetal fetus tour t-shirt or a bug fuck nutters mug? Zazzle regularly has 20% off sales site-wide, so not only do you get some kick-ass merch, you get it for a kick-ass price. So what are you waiting for? Get over to Zazzle.com slash shop slash this spooky show and get your macabre merch now. Do it. Do it. I did it. You can do it too. Do it. Do it. Do it. I command it. And now back to the show. Who are we going to be listening about here So we're kind of delving back into the sort of mysterious unknown death territory with um, the death of Bruce Lee. Oh, no. Yeah, this is a sad one. This one bums me out. Not that death doesn't generally bum me out, but this one's an extra bum out kind of of one for me. Uh, When Bruce Lee awoke on the morning of July 20th, 1973, he was a fit and healthy movie star on the top of his game. He had spent the morning meeting with producers about his next film project and spent the afternoon at a friend's house. His fame was rapidly on the rise and the future looked bright for the 32-year-old star. By nightfall, he lay dead on a mattress on the floor, leaving a shocked world to wonder, how did Bruce Lee die? How did he die? He is one of the healthiest human beings ever, so that is a very good question. (laughs) To answer that question, we need to backtrack a bit. Bruce Lee was born Lee Junfan on November 27, 1940, in a hospital in the Chinatown area of San Francisco. He was born in the year and the hour of the dragon, which according to tradition is a, quote, strong and fortuitous omen. Lee and his parents would return to Hong Kong when he was three months old. I, however, was born in the year of the monkey, which just means apparently that I throw poop. I was born in the year of the dog, so it just means I yap a lot. I mean, dog's better than monkey. It's true, I do like dogs. I like monkeys. I'm upset about my zodiac sign. <laughs> I'm not, not having it. I'd like to return it. At least you I weren't like, born in the year of the pig. I mean, pig is better, or though. rat. Rats? I, any of them are better than monkey, in my opinion. <laughs> like, monkey's the worst one. There could be a year of the stone, and you'd be like, yes. I would choose that. <laughs> I would choose year of the rock over monkey. I would choose year of the dog turd. <laughs> That the monkey throws. I would choose year of the episiotomy. Year of the chief nipple. I could keep going. <laughs> I mean, ugh. You really do not like I monkeys. I don't. I really fucking don't. I hate them. I hate them. It's I okay, monkeys. I love you. I mean, just, Obnoxious. Anyways, going back to our story. <laughs> I got sidetracked. Lee's father was a famous Cantonese opera star, so Bruce was introduced to the stage and films early on in life. His first role was as a baby in the film Golden Gate Girl, and by 18, he had appeared in 20 films. Wow. Yeah, it's pretty impressive. It's almost a film a year. I know, right? It wasn't all stars and sunshine, though. Lee had a habit of getting into street fights, and his parents ultimately decided that he should train in martial arts to be able to defend himself. He began training at 16 in Wing Chun, a traditional Southern Chinese style of Kung Fu taught by Yip Man. After a year of training, most of Yip Man's other students refused to train with Lee upon discovering his mixed heritage. His mother was from um, Eurasia, 
Like his mother gotcha, wasn't, gotcha. wasn't full Chinese. It was a taboo at the time for Chinese to teach their martial arts to any non-Asian. But Li stuck with his training and was, in a handful of other people, personally trained by Yip Man himself. In the spring of 1959, Lee had gotten into another street fight and was even threatened with jail by the local authorities. His parents had become increasingly concerned about the frequency of the fights, one of them even resulting in the son of a local triad member being badly beaten by Bruce. Like he whooped that kid's ass. You go, Bruce. His father, fearing retribution by the criminal underworld or jail time for his son, eventually decided that the safer option would be for Bruce to return to the United States. They sent him to live with his older sister, Agnes Lee, in San Francisco, but he would not stay long, eventually moving to Seattle to complete his education. He would briefly attend the University of Washington, but would drop out in 1964 to pursue training and fame in martial arts. And that he did. He did do that. This is very, this is a fact. He would be discovered by Hollywood at the 1964 Long Beach International Karate Championships and would go on to be cast as the loyal and deadly sidekick Kato in the serial action series, The Green Hornet. This was a seminal role for Lee and one of the first major roles offered to an Asian American on a television show. This was one year ahead of George Takei being cast as helmsman for the Enterprise, Hikaru Sulu, on the original Star Trek television series. Though, if you ask me, Picard is, and always has been, the superior starship captain. Fight me, Kirk bros. And mic drop and remove nerd glasses. The show would be canceled in 1967, but it was only the beginning of fame for Lee. He would go on to develop his own unique form of martial arts called Jeet Kune Do. He would get rid of the formalized approach which plagued traditional styles of martial arts and instead would emphasize the quote, style of no style, as he called it. He would urge his students, amongst whom included scriptwriter Sterling Siliphant and actor James Coburn, to be quote, formless, shapeless, like water. This is what it is, okay? I said, empty your mind, be formless shapeless like water now you put water into a cup it becomes the cup you put water into a bottle it becomes the bottle you put it in a teapot it becomes the teapot now water can flow or it can crash be water my friend he would be a technical advisor on several films and appear in a handful of film roles and television episodes himself gaining steady work behind the camera and in front of it but Lee was growing dissatisfied with the supporting roles that Hollywood had to offer, and under the advice of producer Fred Weintraub, Lee returned to Hong Kong in order to make a feature film, which he could then pitch to Hollywood executives. Lee signed a two-film contract with Golden Harvest Studios, and he would play his first leading role in The Big Boss in 1971, which would be a massive box office hit all across Asia and would catapult Lee into stardom. Apparently the highest grossing film at that time before he made that movie was The Sound of Music. Oh, wow. Which had made $2 million or something like that. And when Big Boss came out, it made like an insane, like it made like $3 million, like a whole other million dollars. So it was like an immediate, like massive hit. Which back then, even $2 million was a lot. Mm. $3 million was probably unheard of for a movie to make. Oh, for sure. And this was, obviously it was a foreign market too. So mm-hmm. it's like, but it was like so crazy. It was like, I thought the highest grossing film in... China and Hong Kong was The Sound of Music. I hate that fucking musical. <laughs> the hills are alive. No. <laughs> the hills are dead because I murdered them <laughs> for that fucking musical. 
He would follow the success of Big Boss with Fist of Fury in 1972, which would again break the box office record set by his previous film. Having fulfilled his contract with Golden Harvest, he would negotiate a new deal with them as well as begin his own production company where he would have complete creative control over his third film, Way of the Dragon, in 1972. Back at that same Long Beach Karate Championship in 1964, Lee had met American Karate Champion Chuck Norris. Norris was cast as Lee's opponent in Way of the Dragon, and their ultimate showdown has been described as, quote, one of the best fight scenes in martial arts and film history. It's true. It's a really good fight scene. And that film grossed $11 million in Asia, which was unheard of at the time. To be fair, it's pretty epic. It's a very epic fight scene. Just Lee and Norris beating the crap out of each other in these old ruins while a random street kitten is the only one that's there to watch. They keep panning to the cat (laughs) in the scene too. Like there's one part where the cat's like batting around a ball of paper while they're like warming up to beat each other's asses. And I was like, I don't know what the cat is supposed to symbolize, but I am into it. It's so like cute. like they were trying to get a reaction shot from the cat like they were going to pan back from like the fists and like kicks the cat going oh damn <laughs> oh shit son <laughs> I will say I could have done without witnessing all of Chuck Norris's thick luxurious shoulder hair it looked like that man was wearing a fur vest without a shirt on gross or like one of those Ikea fur rug cloaks that they used in Game of Thrones oh gross <laughs> <laughs> even winter knows better though than to come for Chuck Norris but I digress. (laughs) Chuck Norris comes for winter, bitches. From August to October of 1972, Lee began work on his fourth film, Game of Death, co-starring seven-foot-two basketball star Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. But production would halt in November when Warner Brothers came knocking with an offer that Lee couldn't turn down. They offered him the starring role in the film Enter the Dragon, which would be the first to be jointly produced by Golden Harvest, Lee's own production company, Concord, and Warner Brothers. It would also see international distribution. Filming began in Hong Kong in February of 1973 and was completed by April. And this was where the trouble seemed to begin. On May 10th, Lee collapsed during an automated dialogue replacement session for Enter the Dragon. He was rushed to the hospital, suffering from seizures and a severe headache. Doctors would diagnose Lee with a cerebral edema, condition where excess fluid collects around the brain, causing pain and swelling. They treated him with a drug called mannitol, a diuretic, in order to get rid of the extra fluid, and after a few days of treatment, he felt much better and assured his friends that, quote, this was not how Bruce Lee would die, unquote. Spoiler alert. (laughs) It's a badass saying, though. Right? Like, guy was pretty fucking badass. Like, just be like, intensely. Like, nope, this isn't how death gets me. Mm, All right, we'll see. After his release, he would resume his usual health regimen and diet, a strict formula of vegetables, rice, fish, and milk. Lee excluded all baked goods, flours, and refined sugars from his diet, as he would claim that the body was like a finely tuned engine, and one could not expect peak performance if you provided it with low-grade fuel. Which, I mean, hey, to each his own. I seem to do just fine on fuel consisting of carbs, coffee, booze, and biting sarcasm. So, you know, everyone's engine runs a little different. He seemed to be on the fast track to a full recovery, and other than complaining about an occasional headache, gave his family and friends no reason to be concerned. That was until the day of July 20th. Bruce Lee's last day on Earth proved to be a busy one. He was in Hong Kong discussing details of his upcoming film with friend and producer Raymond Chow. Lee was acting out scene after scene with enthusiasm, despite the intense summer heat. That afternoon, he would visit the apartment of friend and Taiwanese actress, and some would later claim mistress, Betty Ting Pei. They spent the afternoon alone together and then made dinner plans for the evening 
to meet up with Raymond Chow in order to finalize the movie deal. At approximately 7.30 in the evening, shortly before they were due to leave for dinner, Lee complained of a headache. Ting Pei would give Lee a commonly prescribed painkiller called Equagesic, which contained aspirin and a mild tranquilizer, mepromabate. Lee would retire to bed after taking the drug. After a few hours, Lee still hadn't woken from his nap, and Ting Pei would go upstairs in order to rouse him. She would find him in the bed, unresponsive. She called Raymond Chow, who came to the house and also attempted to wake Lee, but to no avail. They then phoned a doctor, who would spend 10 minutes trying to revive Lee before he was finally sent to the hospital. But it was too late. By the time he arrived at the hospital, Bruce Lee was pronounced dead. He was 32 years old. How had this happened? How had such a seemingly healthy man succumbed to such a mysterious and timely end? We're going to get into that. The autopsy showed no signs of external injury, but revealed that his death had been caused by severe brain swelling. Excess fluid inside Lee's skull had resulted in a 13% increase in brain size. Yeah, talk about a major fucking headache. Jesus. And your brains are coming out your nose at that point. Yeah. Friend and producer Raymond Chow claimed that Lee's death had been an allergic reaction to the drug he'd been given, and the coroner's report seemed to support this claim. The coroner formally reported, quote, death by misadventure due to a second cerebral edema brought on by the drug equagesic. Which I guess death by misadventure kind of means like you knew the risk, but you did it anyway. So it's different than like an accidental death of like you took it not knowing. This was like, yeah, this was a risky drug, apparently, that according to the coroner, that he felt this was a risky concoction, and he just took it and went ahead with it anyway. Gotcha. Several subsequent investigations seemed to back up these claims, but that didn't stop a torrent of conspiracy theories that sprung up in the wake of Lee's death. Some claimed he'd been poisoned by either Ting Pei or a member of the Chinese underworld as a result of Lee's staunch refusal to conform to traditional Chinese standards of not teaching martial arts to non-Asians. A disagreement which had led to a famed showdown many years earlier between Lee and fellow martial artist Wong Jack Man. And I guess he beat the guy's ass. Like, As one do. Like, in supreme fashion did he beat this man's ass. Like, the guy even said later, he's like, I went over for, like, a friendly handshake and he advanced forward and tried to take my eyeballs out. Damn. Like... Bruce Lee was not fucking around. This was like, no, dude, this isn't a friendly, like, how you doing, buddy? This is like, you're basically challenging my reputation and my status, it, like, in the community, so I'm gonna come at you. Mm-hmm. Like, this was not, you know, this was not a fucking ice cream social, dude. Chuck Norris, a close friend and former co-star of Lee's, would later claim that there had been a fatal interaction between the muscle relaxants that Lee had been taking. Bruce is, you know... Was 32 years old. Let me ex- explain something about his death too, because there's, I guess, so many, you know, rumors that are going about about how he uh, passed away and so forth, about touch of death and drugs and so forth. And so I'd like to clarify that before we go on with the demonstration. Is Bruce, in 1968, uh, you know, he's pretty heavy in, in the weightlifting, as you could tell. He was very well built, and uh, he was lifting weights one night with uh, Karim Jabbar, who was a student of his uh, when he uh, when he was in Los Angeles playing at UCLA. And he tried to lift too many too heavy weights, and he ruptured the disc in his back, and he was laid up in the hospital for three weeks. In fact, the doctor said that they didn't know if he'd be able to walk again or not. But of course, with a person like Bruce, who's got the drive and determination to achieve anything in life, he was up in about a month, and, uh, and within three months, he was as strong as he ever was. But he had constant back pains from that day on, and he was having to take medication to keep the muscles in the back loose and relaxed. So what happened is that when he was in Hong Kong, preparing for his uh, next movie. He was uh, working with a, a girl named Betty, uh, 
and who's going to co-star with him, and he got a severe headache. So Betty gave him some antibiotics for the headache, and with the uh, medication he'd taken for his back and the medication he'd taken for his headache, they reacted to each other and made his brain swell up, and it created an aneurysm or a ruptured blood cells in his brain, and that's actually what happened. So if anyone asks you what happened, that you can tell them the true story. This only sparked more debate about what other substances Lee had been taking prior to his death. Stimulants, herbal supplements, or even steroids maybe to stay on top of his game? None of these were found in the autopsy, though a small amount of cannabis was found in Lee's stomach. But as we all know, cannabis is hardly a fatal drug. If nothing else, it's going to help you relax even more, actually. Right. But the most popular theory that still carries on today is that of a weird family curse. It's the most popular fan theory, I guess, going, going on this one still. This theory gained much more traction some 20 years after Lee's death with the ill-fated death of his son, Brandon Lee, on the set of the film The Crow. Brandon Lee seemed poised to step into his father's shoes as an actor and martial arts star in his own right when a freak accident involving a stunt pistol claimed the young actor's life at the age of 28. People seemed all too eager to chalk up such unfortunate circumstances of the two men dying in the prime of their fame up to a supernatural curse. Kind of like the Kennedy curse. Kind of, yeah, something like that. It's like there's, they think that, I don't know if they think somebody at some point like put a hex or a, a curse on the family and just, because no, but no one else has really encountered any kind of, like his wife never did. Mm-hmm. Um, his, he had a, Brandon Lee and then he had a daughter as well. And like, she's never encountered any like, anything bad that's ever happened other than obviously her dad and her brother dying, which obviously are shitty, but she's never encountered any kind of like premature death or anything like that. So I don't know. The Kennedy curse only affected the men too. That's true. This is a fact. And I mean, like his wife's obviously not part of the, his bloodline. So it would only affect, you know, offspring and things like that. So Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's, 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 it's something interesting to think about. And while there is no evidence of Lee or his family ever getting on the wrong side of a witch doctor or shaman that I know of, more than likely this was the simply the tragic mishap of a fatal overdose due to underlying health conditions. Even more recent theories have posited that Lee actually had suffered from heat stroke prior to this, and that exacerbated his edema. Either way, there is no doubt that Lee himself, ebullient and dramatic, may have enjoyed a bit of mystery surrounding his final hours. He probably would have. Right. He was, a, he was kind of, like, he was an interesting dude. Like, if you sit down and, like, listen to interviews with him, he was a very interesting guy. Uh, but what do you think, Spooky Nation? Was this a case of a curse, an accident, or foul play? You decide. I'm leaning towards accident. Yeah. Bruce Lee just seems like too much of a badass to, like, for someone to want to take him out. Yeah, I think even death would kind of question that one. Like, death would show up for him and go, No! <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm I'm going to come back. I'll come back when you're like 90. Is that cool? Like, I feel like I might be able to take you then. <laughs> but only in your sleep. Because I feel like if you're awake, you'll still kick my fucking ass. <laughs> <laughs> like, he would have kicked death's ass. Like, I, I do think, honestly, I don't believe in the whole curse thing. Now, what did happen to his son is really unfortunate. And I just think it's just one of those weird, ironic things that happen that just... I don't think there's any kind of correlation to his father's death. I don't think there's a curse on the family. I do think that because of, and it, what makes sense, what like Chuck Norris said that he had hurt his back prior to this, like really badly, like mm-hmm. he had hurt his back and he was on muscle relaxants. Plus if he did indeed have heat stroke, heat stroke does, um, from what I've heard, it does tend to alter your brain. Um, 
in that it makes you very susceptible to get it again. Mm-hmm. Like it makes, so it could have made it more susceptible to the swelling, to what the interactions of the medications he was taking. And at that time, that was, equagesic was a very commonly prescribed me- medication. Mm-hmm. It was very commonly prescribed. So not, there weren't really any other deaths associated with it. But if he was taking muscle relaxers like somas and that and other things, you never know how all those things are going to work right. in your body. Like, you just don't know. Because it had the pain medication had a sedative in it. Yeah. Plus he's taking muscle, muscle relaxer. relaxers, which are a sedative. Yeah. Plus he's taking cannabis, which is also a sedative. Yeah. So it's like, I think just a lot of, and who knows with the heat stroke also yeah. causing, you know, uh, causing a reaction. So it's, it's entirely possible that it's, I think it was just an unfortunate confluence of, of drugs that he was taking. And dude, if drugs can take out Asian Superman, shit, Jesus Christ. Super he was. Man. He was Chinese Superman. Like, it, true. watch that video of him playing ping pong. It is ridiculous, and it makes you go, "Was Bruce Lee human?" I think when he died, he just transcended to another level of consciousness that we just don't understand. Like, he didn't die so much as he just removed himself from this world <laughs> because he was so like pinnacle of of amazement. <laughs> He's the one that could use the. Never born, yeah. never died, 100%. only visited. Yeah, for a brief fuck you, Osho. Time. That's Bruce Lee's epitaph. Fuck off. <laughs> but like that, yeah, dude was insane. Like insane martial artist. If you haven't seen, then they did finish the one movie he had started, um, was finished posthumously and was released after his death. So, Enter the Dragon was released only six months before he died, oh, and wow. that was his biggest hit uh, film, which is is hugely famous. And then um, the one he was working on with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was was completed posthumously after he died and was released after his death and is also a big hit. Not as big as Enter the Dragon, but it was released, like, I think a year maybe after his death. So. Well, sadly, Spooky Nation, we have come to that time where we have run out of time for today. <laughs> I'm so glad we had this time to kick <laughs> You should follow us on social media at This Spooky Show on all platforms. Don't forget to check out our Patreon page where you can sign up for just a dollar a month to help the show grow and to get some exclusive content. Yes. Like? Like shout outs! We want to shout out Lily, our newest cult initiate, and Conry, our newest shadow person emissary. Thank you both so much for your support and for listening and all that you do. And thank you all as well for listening. Thanks, guys. We appreciate you. We do. And do you want to believe Spooky Nation? Yes. If so, join us back in two weeks when we ask, and possibly, probably not, answer the question, are we alone in the universe? In episode 25, The X-Files. X is for extraterrestrial. Area 51 and alien encounters. I'm proud of that by the way it's a very good title thank you (laughs) heads up there's gonna be a lot of x-files references yo so get up to speed get on my level and just right now go ahead and go make your tinfoil hats Mm. you'll need them for next episode yes mine's in the shape of horns (laughs) i don't know where i was going with that (laughs) i haven't made mine yet but i'm thinking we're a mohawk mohawk. great minds already (laughs) it's already happening the brain waves already confluencing (laughs) I'm just saying, we stopped at that alien brothel. 
and we this did. is what happens now. Now we're mind melding. Oh no, guys, we're slowly sh- becoming the same sh- person. Shit's real. Holy shit! <laughs> but until then, stay, stay spooky, spooky, friends. friends.